Welcome back to the Ublocity podcast with me, Don Birch. This is the podcast where we get to speak to thought leaders from across the world about blockchain and how technology is going to disrupt the world that we live in. I'm absolutely delighted this week to welcome to the podcast Rohit Tawa. Now, Rohit is a global futurist. He's an award-winning keynote speaker. He's an author, and we'll come to that in a moment, and he's also the CEO of Fast Future. Robert, welcome to the Ublocity podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I remember you at a conference a few years ago, and you absolutely blew my mind to the point where I was linking in with you after about the first minute. It must be great being in that world where you're able to just watch an audience's eyes expand as you start to explore and, and, and delve into what's coming around the corner. Oh, it's a huge amount of fun sharing these ideas and these possibilities and seeing the range of reactions in the room from people who, like you, were connecting with me on LinkedIn and already starting to think about what could this mean for me, my kids, uh, the future, to the people who, the other end of the spectrum, are determined not to enjoy what you're telling them or to find reasons why none of this could possibly materialise or uh, develop in the possible ways that I'm talking about. Now, I remember you saying once that you've been looking into the future since they put a man on the moon, right? And exploring what comes next. I just kind of found myself getting interested in kind of the new, the different, what happens after what happens next, as one of the uh, older futurists in this world now, what's Wacker calls it. Uh, and then I kind of went into artificial intelligence after university. And I've always just been in that space of trying to understand what might be coming that could shape our world. And then I was in consultancy and, and gradually spent more and more time focusing on the future piece, set this business up to really guide clients around that, started to do a lot of bit of original research, then set up a business to publish our own books. Uh, we have six titles out there now and a seventh coming uh, at the end of this month called Aftershocks and Opportunities 2, Navigating the Next Horizon. And that's 37 thinkers from around the world talking about what our world could look like as we come out of the pandemic, whether it's the futures of regions like uh, Africa, uh, the future of food, how industries like insurance and travel might be reinvented, how our lives might change, and how technologies such as uh, blockchain could disrupt our world and create wholly new possibilities. Sometimes when I hear people talking about the future of technology or how things are developing, I always have this kind of sense that things move a lot faster than you can that feel comfortable for some. So you kind of see the technology is moving at such a pace that people are a little bit scared of what's happening and they need to try and make sense of it. And then as you look back, you realise that some elements of technology actually take a decade or 15 years to really embed, to really make those fundamental shifts. And, you know, I'm thinking back sort of five, ten years ago when everyone said augmented reality is going to change everything. Retail is going to change, you know, how you shop, everything. Everything's going to change. It's all going to be augmented. And yet sometimes those things actually apply themselves in very different ways, don't they? They sort of manifest in very different ways. I always worry about people who just sit and kind of prognosticate and say, this technology will be the future, whether it's augmented reality, AI, blockchain or whatever, it's never one technology, it's how they come together. And what's often the case is that the pace of technology innovation far outstrips our capacity to understand it or our willingness to make changes in our business to take advantage of it. I think one of the things that's slightly different right now is that 
the innovators who are creating these technologies or pioneering their applications are finding ways to get to market where they can get very high visibility without relying on the bigger businesses to adopt their solution. So you're seeing you know, 8,000 ventures plus now in the crypto economy where they've been able to come to market, they're discussed on social media, there's a global community of 300 million people involved in that space. And so they're able to get their ideas to market really quickly. And they're able to disrupt with these technologies in a way that we hadn't done in the past. And I think that's really exciting. And you're also seeing the coming together of all these technologies, particularly things like AI and blockchain, that make it really exciting, if, if you're a techie nerd like me, in terms of how we can do things and how we can do things differently. Uh, it also creates some immense challenges in terms of how do you deal with the societal impacts and the human impacts of all this. But I think we can't just hold back the tide of, of technology innovation now. What we have to do is really raise our own digital literacy, raise our understanding of how this could impact our world, and then raise our capacity to actually take advantage of it and create the new jobs and opportunities that we need to absorb the people who might get displaced by technology innovation. Because there are many new industries coming through, but they'll need different skill sets. So we can definitely tackle the problem. We just need to have the imagination and the desire to go after it. I sometimes think that when technologies start to impact, you know, the weekly shop, right, the, the people going in and out, the Tesco's and the Morrison's, that then it sort of breaks into this area of the world where you kind of go, oh, okay, I can see it now. So, you know, let's take blockchain, right? So I'm imagining food provenance and consumers increasingly going, I don't trust you. It's not enough now for you to make a claim that this product is green or this product is carbon neutral or this product, frankly, even has 100% of the ingredients in that you tell me it does. I want to be able to push against that. That technology is coming into a, a place now where it might not really be consumers at the end who want to do that, but every part of the supply chain wants to make sure they're buying what they said they were going to buy and they need to prove it onward to the next customer. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that blockchain gives us with this idea of a distributed architecture and immutable transaction recording, i.e. no one can go in and rub out the data and change it, that's the real power here. Because I don't know if you remember, there, there's been a lot of storms in the last few years about companies misreporting the environmental performance and the CO2 emissions of their vehicles. And they'd effectively edited them internally. With the blockchain, if you were capturing that information, you were capturing the performance data of those vehicles, no one would be able to change that. And I think that's the bit that really starts to build consumer confidence that if I really want to know where the food comes from, what the ingredients are, where those ingredients were sourced from, and get deeper and deeper, like the energy footprint, the carbon footprint, the amount of water used by each player across the value chain, over time I'll be able to dig in and dig deeper and deeper and deeper with this totally transparent blockchain solution. And I think that's really empowering the consumer to make good choices and it's putting a spotlight on business to say, look, there is a way of both being ethical and open and consistent in your behavior and also demonstrating that in a transparent, trustless manner. No one needs to trust you. They can see the data. And I think that's a mindset shift 
that we'll see more and more in the coming years as we get more and more blockchain applications spreading into our world and touching individuals in their lives. As you bring these technologies together, because I guess, you know, blockchain has been given a bit of a bad rap, hasn't it, by people who don't really understand cryptocurrency yet. And, you know, I was talking to a guy, a friend of mine who's worked in the city for 25 years, and and, it, and you know, I said, what's your view of crypto, right? And and he's kind of like, well, you know, everyone kind of thought it was just these nerds and it's a bit of a, you know, dream project. It's for, it's for terrorists and it's for, you know, funneling dark money on the dark web. But, you know, increasingly, you're seeing a flood, aren't you, of corporations adopting cryptocurrency, big corporations, and more importantly, you know, USA's government going shit, how do we tax it? You know, on the one hand, they're going, we need to turn the turn it off, right? But, you know, I was watching a documentary on Amazon Prime last night. Even the idea that people think you can turn it off, you know, just demonstrates the lack of understanding that's out there in relation to this new way of transacting. You know, what is money if it wasn't ever a solid way to transact? And here you have crypto, something that, you know, is finite. It's a finite resource. Yeah, it's interesting. The whole idea of turning it off. There are ways you could do it. Whether it's hugely punitive fines of the people involved, arresting the people involved, shutting down the servers, countries banning them. There's a lot of ways you can do that. But why would you want to? And what's great now is that the visibility of data on the blockchain means that we can see exactly where the money is going. We don't know who the counterparties are, but we can see their wallets we can see effectively what they're buying. So that bit on the dark web that people talk about, funding terrorism, funding drugs or contract killings and all that stuff, frankly, right now it's tiny. Uh, And we can see that because we can see where the money is in people's wallets. We know the total size of the crypto economy. It's about $2 uh, a bit less in the last couple of days. But um, we can see that most of it is inside people's wallets or in hard wallets, you know, off the, effectively off the internet. But the other side of it is that without the dark web, without the drug dealers and the money launderers and things, the crypto economy would have died. There was a period where they kept it running in the same way as there was a period where the porn industry pioneered the use of e-commerce and really moved the internet from being a fun toy to something really meaningful for business. So, so we you know, we can be critical of these things, but we also have to recognise the benefits that they bring and the, the innovations that some of these things can bring to market. And right now, I think it's a, it's a fascinating space. We're seeing, obviously, the, the, the whole range of, of possibilities emerging. Yesterday, El Salvador actually started using Bitcoin as a legal tender, uh, which I think is a really interesting tipping point because that gives countries the ability to decouple themselves from another currency, in this case, the US dollar, but also decouple themselves from the influence of those countries, whether it's political or monetary influence. Uh, So this is a kind of liberating moment as well. The the blockchain and, and cryptocurrency are really liberating moments. And I just think when you look across this, the piece now, forgetting crypto for a moment, just what we can do with blockchain really does start to provide a way of using this trustless technology to create infinite trust in society and to change the cost and speed at which we do things. So look at something like money transfers. Uh, you go to a conventional money transfer service and it can cost you up to 12% of the funds transferred. The banks have hugely complex processes for doing this. By using blockchain, 
they reckon banks alone are going to save eight to $12 billion a year in the administration costs of doing money transfers across borders and probably tens of times that in individual transfers around the world. In health, what I love now is that people like um, Burst.io and Wholecare are setting up platforms where doctors, other healthcare providers and patients can move their data around, move their care plans, their medication protocols. These can be shared in a completely secure manner. There's no risk of them being hacked or you know, failure of a central system, losing your data. So we can empower patients. They can move from doctor to doctor more easily when they pitch up to a hospital. The doctor's notes are readily available. They haven't got the wrong patient. And just increase people's faith in the system and increase the value of the system overall. So every space we look in, I just see like amazing innovations. And I'm driving people crazy at the moment. Just... <laughs> talking to them about the art of the possible, not because I want to sell the technology, but I just want them to move beyond fact-free conversations or, you know, fear, uncertainty and doubt holding them back to saying, look, just understand what this is, understand why this is different, understand why you can't do this with a centralized system. Because that's one of, that's been one of the things people have been saying to me since 2008-9 when Bitcoin first came out and we first kind of started to understand blockchains. Everyone was saying, well, everything you can do with a blockchain, you can do with a central system. And just even saying that, you realize they didn't understand it. But now we're starting to see so many examples where no one can show me how you could do that with a centralized system. I'll give you one more and then I'll shut up for a bit. Um, So we're all talking about the Internet of Things. We're getting really excited, you know, hundreds of millions, billions, maybe even trillions of devices from our phones and our computers to the intelligent lights on my desk at the moment that know when to switch on and off uh, wirelessly through to sensors that will be embedded in our clothing, all being connected in this giant kind of internet of humanity, sharing data with each other, it being analyzed in the cloud, better and better services then being created on the back of it. That's wonderful. But the problem is security that, effectively the sensor in my shoes becomes the weak point of the internet because that's probably the least secure element of everything. And so these points at the edge of the network are are where we need the most security. That's been a real issue with the internet of things. And a lot of people spend a lot of time pulling their hair out about how do we ensure that. Now you're seeing some great solutions coming through that are blockchain based. So there's one called Hyper, spelled H-Y-P-R. And what they've done is created this decentralized mechanism for capturing the credentials of the devices and their users in a way that they can't be hacked. Uh, You've got to validate against those credentials and those sit on multiple different servers. And they reckon that they've effectively created an unhackable model for securing the Internet of Things. Now, that in itself is worth tens of billions to hundreds of billions because of the number of companies that are kind of slightly holding back on going down the IoT path because they're worried about the security issue. So the technology is going to enable us to unlock all sorts of potential in society, enable the acceleration of new businesses and new ideas uh, in education. I said I was going to shut up, but I'm going to give you one more. In education, <laughs> one of the things that, that, that people worry about now is fraudulent credentials. 
that someone pitches up and says, yeah, I've got, you know, an MBA from uh, Harvard, my PhD from Stanford, and I've got six undergraduate degrees from other Ivy League universities. Turns out they haven't. They've just printed them off the web. But now when we can start to record your credentials using blockchain, lock them, or if you like, print them in what's called a a, a non-fungible token, i.e. You know, something that isn't tangible, that's secure, that can't be overwritten, that can't be edited, and that can travel with you everywhere. So you can guarantee that the credentials you're being prevent, presented with by a candidate are real and valid. Uh, and then you can start to extend that. So you're seeing people in government now, Illinois has got this uh, blockchain initiative where they're capturing people's uh, social security numbers, their birth certificates, their death certificates, their voter registration uh, certificates, all being captured. So you, again, you can't have fraudulent uh, claims to, to be able to vote because you're dead or fraudulent claims of benefits because the child doesn't exist. You can't turn up and vote uh, pretending to be someone else because you haven't got the credentials. So we're seeing really interesting applications in literally every walk of society now. And I think that's key. That's opening up the mindsets to the art of the possible and encouraging people to say, actually, we need to spend more time understanding this. And rather than finding reasons not to do it, start to look at where are some of the biggest challenges in our business and where might blockchain and a combination of other technologies help us to really overcome that? Remind us of your book. What When you were pulling that together, and I guess that's a strange thing to do in this day and age, isn't it? To actually have to go through the process of researching it, gathering the information, speaking to lots of people, getting it down on paper and getting the thing printed. You know, the time delay there, It must. does it not worry you sometimes by the time it's written and out there that it's already kind of, you, you know, you can already see past it? Our approach, when we did our very first book in 2015, we did the whole thing in 17 weeks. It was 62 chapters, uh, you know, 500 plus pages. And we just worked very fast with the authors. So we have very tight cycles for them to write their chapters, two rounds of editing. This one, uh, we did the first version of, well, the first iteration in June of last year. So I think it was in March when the pandemic really started to, kind of take hold of people's imaginations and they realised it wasn't going away, we went out to our network and said, hey, why don't you write a chapter? We'll get the book out in June. Uh, and so we did it even faster. Really. It was, you know, within three months, it was written, published. But we had so many responses, way more than we could handle. So we split them. And we said to a second group, look, we're going to hang on to these and we're going to wait a year or so. And then we'll do a second iteration and you can update them, but let's see where this has evolved to. Let's see how society's adapted or, strugg- or is struggling. And then let's bring a second one out around now. We just, uh, you know, so we the end of this month is sort of the, the target for that. And what that's meant is a lot of them wrote the chapter at the time and they've made some minor tweaks, but most of what they were suggesting is still incredibly valid in terms of what that future could hold for us. I'm going to ask you the unfair question, but what's coming that I think, that you think, sorry, what's coming around the corner that you think that most people are yet to really grasp? And and maybe it's, it's too simple a question, but is it just this sense that, this is going to impact almost every part of our being, you know, every part of life, every how we transact, how we shop, you know, how we 
control our own data, whether it's, as you say, this sense that, you know, because let's go back a little while. Tim Berners-Lee was pretty upset with the web, wasn't he? He's kind of going, I've created it. It was never designed to be used in the way it's been used. All of the power has ended up in corporations. And actually, the real power ought to be in the hands of our own personal identity pods, you know, our own, we should be in charge. And, And it sounds like blockchain is going to be an enabler, actually, of arresting back that sense of power to, it's my data, it's me, versus you know, I've inadvertently given it away and it sits somewhere on a server. Well, you know, that's very exciting, isn't it? The idea of using the blockchain to create, you know, internet 3.0. And you're seeing lots of examples now of people saying, actually, one of the things we can do with that is we can give you control. So whether it's your data, uh, where you decide who's allowed to access your data, what rules, you know, create the rules that govern who can, have access to it and what data they can have access to using smart contracts is a tool called civic does that. Uh, And then people who aren't authorized don't get access to it. And people who do have access to it can be banished. If they try and access data, they're not allowed to. So all those kind of things. So, so we can do that. But for me, the biggest kind of shock to society uh, is going to be when all these technologies come together and literally everything becomes money. So the loyalty points I might have from Sainsbury's or you know, from an airline or a hotel suddenly become completely interchangeable in this environment with money or with points from someone else. Uh, the time I've given to paint someone's house, uh, they can reward me in, in you know, crypto or whatever. But even my home, I can tokenize. So instead of you know paying two hundred thousand pounds for a house, you could turn that into I think it's two million one p tokens. I could own some of them. I could pay for some of them with a mortgage, and then the rest could be sold in the open market. Uh, so millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people, could own a bit of my house, and the value of those tokens could go up over time, and they can sell them without me having to sell the house. And you start to open up all sorts of possibilities and everything effectively becomes a medium of exchange. So if I want to buy a car, I could use a bit of my house to go and buy that. Uh, Just use some of the tokens in my house to go and buy that car. I can use, if I had one, you know, my driveway to allow people to park on it. And some sort of, you know, exchange would happen there, which would effectively have a monetary value. So I think when all these things come together and you can do it all with technology, you don't really need humans to do all those transactions. You open up immense possibilities. You create ways in which people can break their kind of current financial situation and, 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 and advance themselves. You know, alongside that, we also need to create the new jobs and we, you know, we can enable the new industries. We can create the new jobs that go with those. But that idea of everything becoming money, everything becoming a tradable asset, your money and your savings account being empowered to constantly be looking to say, I'm Dominic's pound here. Let me look around and see where the best place is for me to go this hour to get the highest possible interest rate and let me move myself and let me do that. Uh, when Dominic's pound goes in to buy, uh, or five pound note goes in to buy a coffee and the coffee is two pounds 75, the five pound note effectively deciding that it wants to round up to three pounds and for that, that 25 pence to either go into savings or 
to buy a fraction of an Amazon share or to buy tokens in three houses that are up at the moment. And we're just moving to a really mind-blowing space where everything effectively becomes tradable. We can transform our prospects. And we start to kind of change the relationship between people, their money, and everything they own. Wow. <laughs> I feel like we're going to have to leave it there, Roy. I think you just blow my head clean off. I'm looking forward to the point where I'm buying a coffee and I'm also buying a share in my next door neighbor's house. It's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on to the Blockity podcast. I feel like, you know, if you're kind enough and generous enough for your time, I'm going to have to have you back on in a few more months because this world is just beginning to change in front of our very eyes. And whilst the likes of you might have been able to see this coming for some time, for us mere mortals, it's just an absolute, it's like being in the middle of a, I don't know, in the middle of a science fiction play that's just playing out right in front of us. It's absolutely fascinating. It is. And the boundaries between what we thought were science fiction and reality are just being obliterated. Well, listen, Rohit Tower, CEO of uh, Fast Future, and of course, a global futurist, award-winning keynote speaker and author. Thank you so much for coming on to the Your Blockity podcast. My pleasure.